If you look there at the opening verse of uh, this fourth chapter and find the words, in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. In the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. And that is really what I want to think about for a time this morning. The coming departure that the Apostle Paul deals with here in this fourth chapter of the book of 1 Timothy. Now this fourth chapter of Timothy marks a major transition in the focus of Paul's letter. Chapters 1 through 3 emphasized personal matters related to church worship. But here in this fourth chapter, the primary topic is dangers posed by false teachers who had arrived in the city of Ephesus. The chapter is often viewed as being written in two different parts. In verses 1 through 5, you have the description of the false teachers in Ephesus. And then in verses 6 through 16, the practical steps for defense against the false teachers. Now you can see that chapter 3 ends with a reference to the church as the pillar and foundation of truth, verse 15 of the previous chapter. As just mentioned, chapter 4 is a warning against the dangers of false teachers and the denial of the truth of the gospel. And according to verse 1, according to this first verse, in spite of the church's role as a guardian of the truth, some will depart from the faith. These are sad words from the pen of the Apostle Paul written so long ago. Many centuries have passed since he wrote these words. And I think that today, the stark reality of this truth, of this teaching, is very evident not only here in the land that we cherish and love, but further afield, right across the face of the earth. So this is the subject for today, this coming departure. First of all, let's think about the certainty of this departure. In verse 1, Paul warns Timothy about this departure from the faith. Notice what it says. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some shall depart from the faith. So Paul begins by stating his authority for making this statement. He says the Spirit, capital S, so it is referring then to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit speaketh expressly, or if you like, plainly, or clearly, or explicitly, or specifically. And the expression the Spirit says is much like saying the Scripture saith. The Spirit was the divine author of this prediction. And Paul claims divine authorization for denouncing false teachers. Now, the Bible does tell us in Jude verse 3 that we are to earnestly contend for the faith. This is the only place in the New Testament where this particular phrase or this particular word is used. And it carries the idea of a conflict or a struggle or even carries the thought of agonizing for the gospel. 
Now, many people can gather around the preacher and say, Pastor, preach the gospel, preach the word. But sadly, some of those people who would say that very thing will be careful to add, according to their thinking, we don't want to ruffle any tellers. In preaching, we don't want to offend anybody. That, that seems to be the order of the day in these days. But Jude tells us we are to earnestly contend for the faith. And we are to take on those who are classed and considered in the light of Scripture as false teachers. False teachers who are deceiving people. Who are telling them there's another way of salvation. Who are telling people, well, you can get into heaven through your good works or whatever. False teaching. Do we stand back? Do nothing about it? Do we oppose them? Or do we earnestly contend for the faith by taking the stand, irrespective of who it hurts or offends? If you're going to preach the gospel faithfully, it's going to offend. That word is used uh, often today in many contexts. We've got to be careful lest we offend people. But when you come to the gospel and preaching the gospel of grace, if you're going to be faithful in telling men the truth of the gospel, it's going to offend. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be opposed as a bigot, as being a racist, sectarian, whatever term you want to use. But we need to join with people like Paul, the great heroes of the faith, the Jude. And we have a responsibility to earnestly contend for the faith. It's the faith, it's the sum of Christian doctrine and teaching, what we believe. That's what we're talking about here, the faith. Not personal faith, but the faith. Earnestly contend for the faith. And so we've got to be clear what's going on here, why Paul is writing as he does. He has authority for doing so. We have the authority of heaven. When we contend for the faith and we expose false teachers and false teaching. Child of God, don't be afraid to stand for Jesus Christ. You think of what he did for you. Think of the cross he bore for you, the shame that he endured for you, the agony, the rejection he suffered, the nakedness of the cross as he fulfilled the will of the Father to make a full atonement for sinners. How greatly Jesus must have loved me to bear away my sins in his own body on the tree. Now think of that. Are you ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Are you ashamed of the gospel of grace? Or are you prepared to take a stand for the glory of God, for this glorious gospel that we cherish, this glorious gospel that is under attack all over the world today? Now that word depart in the Greek is the equivalent to our word apostasy. It's actually the word apostatize. And it denotes a deliberate departure from the faith once professed. Paul writing in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3 talks about the falling away from the faith. Remember in John's Gospel chapter 6, 66, a number of people classed as disciples began to follow Christ. But when they heard the core teaching of the Saviour, 
And what was involved? Many disciples went back and walked no more with him. They departed from what they were professing. They went back. That has happened hundreds, thousands of times since then. That's happening today. It will continue to happen. There's no doubt about it. It will continue to happen. An apostate is one who gives up his profession of being a Christian and forsakes the Christian faith. It is a deliberate departure from a former position. The Lord Jesus Christ used this verb in the parable of the sower, as recorded by Luke. In Luke chapter 8 and verse 13, he talks there about the seed sown on the rocky ground. And the problem was, the seed had no root. And we're told that in the time, of course he's talking about people here, the hearts of people. And he says that in time of temptation, they fall away, they apostatize. They get away from what they professed. An apostate willfully abandons biblical truth. The biblical faith once once professed. Now, some people think Judas was a believer. No, he wasn't. He was a man chosen to be a disciple. But Judas was never saved. He had a profession. I'm one of the Lord's disciples. He probably preached along with the rest of the disciples. He may have performed miracles. I don't know for sure. He assisted the Lord on many occasions. But he was never saved. And the Bible does tell us that he went to his own place. And the Bible identifies his own place as hell. So what a come down. A man who professed faith, who repudiated faith, And he ends up in hell. And he's still there. And there's no way out of the condemnation that he has experienced and will continue to experience. We're not talking here about genuine believers. We're talking about people who profess faith in Jesus Christ. We're talking about those who just have the externals. Their hearts have never been changed by grace. Has your heart been changed by grace? Maybe you profess faith in your earlier times. Was it real? Well, there's no evidence that you're going on with God. There's no evidence that your heart has been changed. Maybe you're not really genuine at all. All you have is a mere profession. But the heart has never been changed by grace. You're still under the wrath and condemnation of God. And if the truth were known, you're just an old Dirty, filthy sinner in the sight of God, just like the rest of us before we were converted. You've never experienced God's liberating power in the gospel. Make sure that it's not just a profession. Make sure it's real. Make sure you've got the real thing. Now, Peter, he had his ups and downs. He denied the Lord, but he was restored to the Lord. And when Judas went out from that meeting with Christ, the Bible says in the gospel, and it was dark. That's deeply significant because not only does it speak of the time of day or the evening or night, but I feel it speaks of the darkness that he went out into. A troubled man 
No repentance, no faith in Jesus Christ at all. So near, so close, and yet so far away. Where is he today? He's in the dark, lost in the dark, perishing in the dark to all of God's eternity, lost forever in the dark. Oh, who wants to go to the darkness? Who wants to go to such a place as that? Well, if you're not converted, if you're not washed in the atoning blood of the Lamb, that's where you'll end up. I have got to tell you this, I'm contending for the faith. I'm declaring the gospel to you, it may offend you. I'm sorry about that. But I have an obligation as a faithful pastor to tell you the truth. And the truth is this. If you're unconverted, you'll be damned for eternity without hope, lost forever. But there's mercy with God. Now we're talking here about this departure. That's apostasy. Okay. Some people use the word and that term apostasy lightly and foolishly at times. Now, think about what I've said about an apostate and what an apostate and what apostasy is. Think about that carefully. Let's not misuse the term or the expression. So when's this, when's this going to happen? Well, Paul defines the time in which the apostasy will take place as the latter times. But then he quickly slips from the future tense into the present tense in verses 3 through 6 indicating his belief that the latter times had already begun in his time. That's the point. So the latter times include, but are not limited to, the time prior to the coming, the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first coming of Christ ushered in the latter times, or the last times. Let's be clear about this now which was the messianic era. It's the church era. Let me just quote 1 John 2 verse 18 in support of what I said. This is what John wrote in 1 John 2 18. Children, that's the way he, he uh, described the people of God. Children, little children who need to be taught, need to be led, just like us all. Well, we have the sheep and the, the, the fold there. We also have the little lambs. So here, children, it's a tender term, and John is a tender man. He's getting the message across, but he's contending for the faith. And he says, children, it is the last time. Way back then. And then Peter takes up the same theme, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He states that Christ was manifest in these last times for you. He was manifested for you. He was revealed for you. And the writer of Hebrews informs us that God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Hebrews 1 verse 2. That's clear. Are you clear about this now? And once at the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin. This is going back 2,000 years ago. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26. Once at the end of the world, 2,000 years ago, he appeared to put away sin. That's the cross. That's Calvary. From the first coming of Christ to his return, all through the age in between, apostasy will occur and escalate toward the end when the time, the love of many, will wax or grow old. Let me ask you, believer today, what about your love for him? Is it as bright as it once was? Is it as tender as it once was? 
Is it as full as it once loved? Now, remember, when John was addressing the church at Ephesus, the church that is concerned here, in John, in the book of Revelation, he talked to them about the need to return to the first love. Let me ask you, child of God, communicant member, let me ask you a very pertinent question. Do you love the Lord? If you do, why do we see you so little? In God's house. Some people are very papist-minded regarding the worship of God once only. Sunday morning, we'll get everything settled down. We can just do whatever we want the rest of the week. If you love the Lord, do you not like coming to talk with him in the times of prayer? When you became a member of this congregation, it took certain vows upon you. Regarding the attendance at the house of God, did you lie? Did you lie when you said you'd be faithful in attending the weekly times of prayer and the attending the preaching of the word of God? Did you lie? Did you tell the truth? Well, sometimes when the preacher gets to the pulpit, Tuesday night, maybe Sunday evening, he looks around and he thinks to himself, where have they gone? Where are they tonight? What's more important now you remember the time you fell in love with a girl or a boy? Oh, you just wanted to see that bubbling every night of the week. It wasn't literally impossible, but you wanted to see her every night or see him every night. And then if an opportunity to do a wee bit of overtime appeared, well, I can't, I've got a big date on tonight. I can't do that. Ah, when it comes to the prayer meetings and Sunday evening in the house of God, oh, we can watch it on sermon audio. It doesn't really matter. Assembling together, it does matter. You're not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. If you love him, you'll show that love by being where the Lord meets with his people on a Sunday and a Tuesday night, whatever times they gather for worship in the house of God. Oh, we're talking here about the falling away. The indifference of men and women today doesn't really matter. It does matter. It matters to the Lord. And I'm sure no child of God really wants to offend the Lord. But sometimes unknowingly, we do offend him by showing a lack of commitment and dedication and involvement in the service of God. Let us sing in. I wanted to sing in. I'm contending for the faith. It may be hard to receive. Some people don't like to be told certain things. But this is a word from God. The Spirit expressly states these things in the Scripture. You can search the word for yourself. See if I'm making it up. I'm not. So the latter times and the latter days, both to note the church age, the, the Christian era, if you like, Jesus inaugurated the last days at his first coming and will consummate it at his second coming. Glory to God, there's a day coming when Christ will come again as King of kings and Lord of lords with healing in his wings, coming for those redeemed by precious blood. Like many Bible prophecies, there's always a near fulfillment for example, in the context here, the near fulfillment was 
in the Ephesian church there. Okay, that's the near fulfillment of these things. And then there's a latter fulfillment which will happen many times throughout church history, culminating in the end times or the last times prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there has been, we've been living in apostate times right down through from the coming of the Savior. It will continue and it will come to a climax. It's getting worse all the time. There's a build-up all the time. And we look around today and we can see what is happening. And maybe people are saying today, are these not the last times we're living in? Yes, we've been living in the last times for 2,000 years, but maybe we've come to the last of the last days with all that's going on around about us. So Paul is referring to the impending crisis of which the first signs were already present there in the church at Ephesus. And the truth is that as we wait for the return of Christ, all we're waiting, we're just like uh, Simeon of old. He was there in Jerusalem in the temple. What was he doing? He was waiting for the coming of the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for Christ to come the first time. You know what happened? Christ did come. And guess what? Simeon did see him. And he wasn't really surprised because he was waiting for Christ to come. And we as the people of God are waiting for the hope of the church, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he will wrap up history, when he will reward his people and he will judge the ungodly and deal with the powers of Antichrist and consign Satan and his emissaries to the bottomless pit. Imagine going to be forever in the company of Satan and his angels in the darkness, in the place of torments forever, a lost soul. So the truth is that as we wait for the coming of Christ, many will fall away from the faith. Now notice the word shall here in this particular verse, shall. That that speaks of the certainty of this departure. But then also notice that other little word, Some, some shall depart from the faith. It's not going to be a complete thing. It's not going to be a complete turning away. There will be still some who will remain faithful unto the Lord. So there's the certainty of it, it's coming. But then there's the encouragement here. Some, some shall depart from the faith. Now let me think about for a moment the days of Ahab. Well, he was, a, he was a real reprobate. He introduced uh, idolatry into the land along with his wife Jezebel. We know their story only too well. God raised up a man. Elijah, fearless. Takes on the false prophets. And, and he sees an end to them, by the way. He didn't hold back. He didn't pull back. He took them down to the brook. And he slaughtered them there. He dealt with the issue. Now, we can't necessarily do that the way it was done then, but there are other ways when they come, just through prayer, asking God to deal with the enemies of truth. But then he got all depressed, and he says, I only am left. I'm the only one that's left. Nobody else contended for the faith, and we look around, and we think to ourselves, the world over, 
We're the only people standing for Christ. Nobody else is taking a stand. And here this man is sitting down under the juniper tree. I, I, I want to die. I don't want to live. I'm only standing for Christ. And the Lord says something to him. Uh, there's 7,000. There's a remnant. Not all have apostatized. Not all have gone away. There's a remnant here. God will always have a remnant. Some shall depart from the faith. Some will depart. Not all. Not all. Paul had warned these Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 when he sailed away from them. He had warned about false teachers would invade the church and now those days had arrived. And the Spirit has spoken in specific terms about these teachers and the prophecy was started to be fulfilled at Paul's time. One of the signs of apostasy, of course, when you have the general turning away, we understand that. The indifference of people towards the things of God. But one of the extraordinary things about apostasy is this. God withdraws his men in times of apostasy. You have the illustration there of Elijah. He's contending for the faith. The people don't listen to him. And what does God do? Oh, we read about him running and fleeing. Yes, we understand that. But God was still superintending all things. He was still in charge and control. And for three, three and a half years, the prophet was withdrawn. And the land continued to suffer. There's no word from God. There's suffering. There's a drought. There's despair. So God has withdrawn the man with the message. He has withdrawn him. You look around the world today and we don't seem to have any great notable leaders in Christian circles. I wonder why. God has been withdrawing his servants and the people in the world are suffering the consequences of that withdrawal because it's the gospel and the gospel of grace that brings blessing to troubled hearts. But when that is removed... You end up getting what we're getting these days. Gender issues. Sodomy. Lesbianism. Immorality. Godlessness. Governments are weak and powerless. Passing things that offend Almighty God. Disgracing a country. Bringing the country down. Not bringing blessing. Bringing the judgment of God. And this is where we're at in these times. God help us. God be merciful to us. It's the same when you read Second Timothy. Paul takes up the same theme about the last days. He's writing about the last days. And almost immediately he divulges that they have already arrived by telling Timothy to avoid the people he had been describing. Certainly it's fulfilled at our own time. I'm just going to bring it to an end now because I've got a couple of more points but I haven't the time to go into it. In the light of what I said, child of God, we as the people of God need to rally around the cross. 
We need to get into the study of God's word the way we've never studied it before. Praying for light to be given to us that we might know the times in which we live. That we might understand the extent of apostasy. What's happening? What is happening to the governments of the world? What are happening to the great leaders of the world? What is ahead for the world? What is ahead for the church of Jesus Christ? But I'm encouraged that even when the people of God and God's people, God's church, down through all of history, the Old Testament aspect of things as well as the New, even in dark times, the people had to suffer, had to go through many things. The Egyptian bondage, for example, the Babylonian captivity, these things were sent to chasten the people. They had to be disciplined. And that's, I believe, what is happening in our day. We're under the judgment of God. God is disciplining his people, judging the world and the nations of the world. And we can do one of two things. We can ignore it at our peril. Or we can say we need to get serious about the things of God, about the house of God, about evangelism, about our responsibilities as the people of God. Let's not shy away from a child of God. We need to do something about it under God. What about it? Will you make the effort this week to be in the place of prayer? Will you make the effort to be here again tonight for the preaching of the gospel? The gospel ought to thrill your hearts and souls. The good news of salvation. Coming with expectation and an eagerness for a gracious outpouring of the Spirit. Where does it start? You think about Simeon there in Luke chapter 2. And I was thinking about him when preparing the message. I thought it might have been for today, but obviously it's not. But uh, Simeon was a man who was led by the Spirit. Listen to it. Where did the Spirit lead him to in Luke chapter 2? It led him to come into the house of God. The house of God was the temple. It led him into the temple. What happened to him there? I want to tell you what happened to him. I want to emphasize this. He saw Jesus in the temple. He met with Christ in the temple. And he rejoiced. And guess what happened next? He broke forth into a poem or a psalm of praise. A psalm of praise. One of the five songs or psalms in Luke's gospel. All about Christ. My, he got excited. He was waiting with anticipation. And then when he came in, at the right moment, the Lord had everything timed. At the right moment, the Spirit led him into the house of God. And lo and behold, Joseph and Mary had arrived in the scene. And their baby was there. So how on earth did Simeon recognize the infant as the Messiah? How did they come to the conclusion they came to? Thy salvation and he's saying, thy salvation is this child here, this infant here. Well, the Spirit of God obviously illuminated his mind and showed him this truth. And as he stood there, oh, maybe he was trembling, but I know he was excited. He'd been waiting for so long. And there the Savior is before What does he do? He embraces him. Can you see him? He takes him up in his arms. He holds him close. And he's saying, thank God for Jesus. 
thank God for my Savior. I'm ready to go now because I have embraced the Savior. Listen, if you love him with all of your hearts, child of God, nothing will come before being in the place he wants you to be in. Now, you may be offended. I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry about that, but I'm telling you the truth. If you want blessing in your life, you'll put him first. Put the blesser before anything else, before all the other things, less important things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Go through with God. And stand up and be counted for the Lord in these times. The church needs you. The cause of God needs you. The Christ of the cross needs you. He wants to be able to count upon his people. Oh, we see one of old Gideon is gathering people with him and a lot of them disappear. Thousands disappear. He's left with 300. They're all pictures. Not pictures that hang on our study walls. Pictures lights and in that amazing fashion yet these pictures with lights in them that's a wonderful picture of God's people empty vessels with light within the light of the Holy Spirit and the Lord is looking for people like that to stand for him and those who did that saw the enemies defeated a minority but they were pictures with lights in them. And there's no telling what God can do with empty vessels filled with the power of the Spirit of God. The Lord is looking for you to stand with him in these days of apostasy, in these days of departure. And I could go on and and talk about what the Lord said to Timothy about what he was to do as a young minister of the gospel, a young student of the word. He was to study the word. And then he was to be built up himself, nourished in the things of God. And then he was to warn the congregation, the people that he was addressing in Ephesus, how to deal with false teachers. So he's really saying, okay, you need to study the word. You need to know the times we're living in. And I, I'm, I'm teaching you these things. How to contend for the faith. How to identify these false teachers. How to seek to reprove them. And how to take a stand for the glory of God. There's no church in Ephesus today. It's gone. Left their first love. As there's someone here today and you've left your first love. Come on. Be honest. Be frank about the thing. Don't bury your head in the sand and pretend it's not for you. God knows. And he's here. And he will deal with you one way or another. Better to be submissive and to fall under the chastening hand of God. So in the latter times some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils and just before I close that word seducing is the word planos p-l-a-n-o-s and from that we get our word planet and the, the idea behind it is of wandering 
Jude talks about wandering stars. Apostates are wandering stars. Empty clouds. And that's where we get this term seducing from. They're wandering. Wandering from truth and righteousness. They're seducing. They're deceivers. Leading people astray. But when we stick to the Holy Scriptures, we will not stray. We're on the solid rock. The rock of Holy Scriptures. If you're with us today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ for salvation, my prayer today is that you might seek him now. Call upon him while he is near. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved Flee to the Lamb today. Flee to the cross. Because we don't know what a day may bring forth. Therefore, be in time. While the voice of Jesus calls you, be in time. May God bless his word. We'll close now with a word of prayer. Father, we do pray that will bless what has been of thyself this day to the glory of God. The Lord has been here today. No doubt about that. He's looking now to the hearts of men. He knows the responses. Oh God, may grace prevail. May humility of heart be given. May a humble spirit be ours this day. Where he may lead me, I will go. For I have learnt to trust him so. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blessing of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest and abide upon all of God's believing people, now and forevermore, and the people of God said, Amen. Amen.